Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning, Lauren. Hi there, Nir. Hi, so this is Nir Isaacovich, and this is the Ethics in Action podcast from UMass Boston's Applied Ethics Center. And my guest today is Professor Lauren Barthold. Uh, Professor Barthold uh, has taught at Gordon and Endicott and uh, Emerson and has written extensively about hermeneutics and uh, about Gadamer on hermeneutics, but we are here today to discuss her newest book on uh, civil dialogue. The book is called Overcoming Polarization in the Public Square, Civic Dialogue. Uh, very, very timely. So Lauren, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, when did the book come out? It came out in June. Okay. So pretty recently. Yeah, uh, just in time to give us guiding. <laughs> Some would say too late, but already. <laughs> So, uh, Lauren, maybe if I can uh, start with asking you a, uh, a broad question. Um, what is civic dialogue? What are some of the preconditions for having it? Uh, why did you decide writing the book in whatever order I decided to write the book in whatever order you want to take those? Right. Yeah, thanks. Um, so for me, the book offers uh, um, an approach to civic discourse, to political discourse, that is particularly apt for polarized times. Um, our, our main tradition in, in Western political philosophy has been that of deliberation, which focuses heav heavily on argumentation and persuasion with the aim of eventually having to come to some sort of political consensus, right? Setting laws, et cetera, uh, which, is, which is great and important. And there've been a lot of changes and nuances to uh, deliberative democracy over the decades. But I think the situation that we find ourselves in uh, more and more today, maybe some would argue it's always been like this, um, is how do we even get to the space, come into the space? How do we get people into the space in order to deliberate well? And Walterson and Armstrong, who came out with a book, I think it was uh, a year or two ago, about how to argue, um, even admits that you can't have people argue well unless they're willing to do so. And so this is really the starting place of my book is how do we motivate people to wanna come and talk across difference mm -hmm. in a way that is going to build trust and really establish a sort of communicative foundation for a culture, for a community. All right. Um, so does anything, I was, as I was reading about your book, I was remembering the you know, the beginning of the uh, Republic where uh, Paul Marcus stands in Socrates' way and he says, well, you know, um, 
can I persuade you to move out of my way or something like that? And he says, how will you persuade me if I won't listen, right? And, right. You know, made, so it made me think about what are some of the preconditions to, as you say, get people into the space where they would start deliberating well in the first place? What has to, right, yeah. to be in place? I, I began um, with that story um, uh, in the opening pages of, of The Republic um, in my introduction because I think it really shows one crucial feature of civic dialogue, and that is appealing to people's interests and values via a story, right? The focus on first-person stories, on narratives, on experiences that would really touch people and motivate them and pique their interest. And so when Socrates learns um, about the, the, the torch race on horseback, that's not an argument, um, but it appeals to something that he's interested in. And this to me really symbolizes what civic how, how civic dialogue really has to start and, and what its um, key features are. It's a way of exchanging first-person stories, experiences with others um, without first getting into the argument over position. So I like to talk about how dialogue, civic dialogue really privileges the person over the position. So I'm more interested in connecting to yeah. you as a person rather than necessarily having to agree on a position. Yeah, yeah. And this is the sort of view of positions from the getting to yes uh, uh, world of positions versus interests and stuff like that. A yes and no. I mean, the getting to yes is used in uh, mediation, conflict, uh, transformation, which this t approach to dialogue can be utilized in that way too. But in civic dialogue, when we're laying the, the foundation for community discourse, the goal is not to get to yes, as in yes, we all agree. The goal is not agreement. It's not um, to make everybody the same. So civic dialogue really takes seriously a pluralistic democracy that we're always gonna have difference. The key is how do we deal with it and how do we talk through difference, over difference, inviting difference in order to uh, affirm a pluralistic democracy. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's getting to yes, yeah, just the ter the terminology of positions uh, and the mm. positions to sort of uh, uh, understanding if there could be uh, uh, <clears throat> some uh, reinterpretation of the interests that underlie them uh, uh, reminded mm. me a little bit. But yeah, I, I definitely see um, I, I definitely see the the difference. But so to go back to something you said a minute ago. Uh, the sort of invitation into the uh, uh, space in which you might uh, ultimately talk focuses more on the person than uh, on the position, more on a particular story. Uh, but sometimes if people have really terrible and crappy positions, it says something about them as persons, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And um, although, you know, that's, I would say that's more of a reaction 
and a sort of initial judgment that it's important to explore beneath. Mm. Um, and so I think when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to dialoguing across difference, I think one thing that, that your comment touches on is the role of identity in formulating positions. So I think in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s, people, maybe 90s, people used to talk about worldview as informing our beliefs, right? So if you think of sort of beliefs, political beliefs on this level, um, and then I think they're funded in some way by, I would say, more identities. So what happens when I hear, if I hear you say a belief that I don't like, I'm immediately probably gonna attach that to an identity of yours. Now that identity could be right or wrong, but I'm gonna make up lots of stories about that identity. <laughs> and so what dialogue does is it moves people even below the identity to fundamental values of being human. So I believe identities are important. My previous book was on social identities, um, but when they become charged and we tell stories about the other person's identity, which blocks us from seeing what ultimately we have in common, then that becomes problematic. Hmm. So again, it's not that we're, it's not that all beliefs are equal or all positions are equal. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and sooner or later, a law will have to be made. We'll have to defund the police or not. Right. Right. But how are we as a society prepared to deal with a law that's brought into place where not everybody's going to agree? Right. Right. The dialogue sort of backs us up and, and sort of excavates underneath both the, the, the top layer of specific beliefs, identity, to go to a deeper level of values, where I believe that, that we do find values in common. So part of the operative assumption in being moved to do that is that a person's um, positions won't exhaust their identity. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that, I think that's a I think that's a great way to put it. And I would say, and their identities don't exhaust who they are as a human being. Mm -hmm. So again, I I'm not against identities. I think we cannot function without identities, um, and they are necessary, but. What dialogue allows is through an exchange of allowing each individual to speak about what they value in their own identities and the experiences that they've had in a given topic or position, those particularities allow people to go underneath to values that are held in common. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of, um, uh, I'm blanking on the uh, novelist's uh, name but there's that novel um oh, hornby nick hornby uh uh there's a, he has this uh, uh he has a lot of funny novels but one of them is uh, called how to be good and it opens with this scene of a woman who uh, uh breaks up with her uh husband who you know tells her husband that she wants to uh, get divorced while she's sitting in a uh a parking lot on the cell phone and she kind of reflects to herself and says you know this kind of makes me a terrible person. And then she raises this question that I've always found fascinating about like, you know, she's a doctor and she has all kinds of, you know, interesting and surprising uh, aspects to her identity and beyond identities as a person. But she asks like, you know, 
do you sometimes get judged by your one-offs or some things that you do, divorcing your husband over the cell phone or car park or whatever, are some things that you do bad enough to kind of actually color your identities? Uh, um, you know, the, the funny example that I think uh, Hornby gives is like, um, you know, if you assassinate Kennedy, you don't get to say, but in the other parts of my life, I'm, you know, kind of a nice guy. Uh, now that's, you know, that's overly dramatic, but it, it seems like it requires a real patience, generosity, and empathy, the kind of dialogical approach that you propose as preconditions, just to sort of take our contemporary moment. If somebody says, you know, this mask wearing of yours is, you know, really hurting my, you know, personal liberties. And I really hate it when I can't get all the nice fresh air that I want through a, a nasal breathing and, you know, whatever it does to your grandmother, it does to her. Um, does that? Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I hear you. And I like to think of um, the practice of dialogue as actually cultivating civic virtues. And I talk about this in, in, um, uh, my final chapter that civic dialogue cultivates civic virtues like openness. So because civic dialogue and the, the particular approach that I spend the most time on in this book is one that's been developed by essential partners. It's called reflective structure dialogue, and it does require a facilitator. It requires communication agreements. Um, it is structured with timed go rounds for reflection with questions that are, um, uh, created in advance. So it's, it's highly, it's highly structured, number one. So what that structure does is it doesn't require somebody to have a patient character <laughs> coming in because the structures are simply going to ask people, you know, now this is a time for silence and now we're going to go around and everybody's going to have two minutes to speak and you can't interrupt. So whether you're a patient person, an extrovert or an introvert, whatever your character is, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But what I argue in the end is that it's actually a way with enough practice when we build these sort of uh, dialogic practices into a community and it becomes part of the culture of a community, then the civic virtues are, are uh, more likely to flourish where people are more than spontaneously or naturally able to listen to one another. So it really doesn't have anything to do with one's feelings. Um, we talk about the dialogic muscle, the, the, the muscle of dialogue. It just needs to be exercised. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. As my husband frequently reminds me when he says, hmm, don't you write about dialogue? Shouldn't you be a little bit better? Right? It's not, it's not easy. Yeah. Um, but with the, with the structure it's, it helps people um, be able to have the practices that they might not naturally inhabit. I, I, think, I think I'm starting to get it. Um, is dialogue in, understood in that way an independent good or is it mainly preparatory for deliberation being understood as the main event? Oh yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, no, I wouldn't say it's only. I would say it's both. So it can. It certainly, I think, is important because again, as we as we 
um, are members of a society that is based on laws, we do need to have have laws made and we will not always agree. But as I talk about in my second chapter on Buber, due to, the, due to our human condition, we are fundamentally beings that want to connect with one another. So I like to talk about us being, rather than rational beings as the Western philosophers have always talked about it, I like to emphasize the fact that we are relational beings. And so this type of dialogue has many uses. I mean, I use it in my classroom. Um, you can use it in smaller settings. So it can be a way, any way to help people connect anytime, even if there's not polarization. You can still use this as a way to really go deeper to help people listen to difference without reacting. That's, that's the key that the structure sets up. How can I really listen with openness and curiosity to somebody who's really different and maybe whose beliefs really trigger me and I abhor, but they're still a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, so it seems like one lead in to that is the kind of uh, uh, storytelling because it kicks us, as it were, into a different mode, into a more narrative and detail-oriented uh, and less judgmental uh, mode. Um, and it also, sorry to interject, it also, what storytelling also does is really exposes the gray areas. Yeah. So yeah. Can, I, can I just give one example? I mean, I was actually going to ask for that. <laughs> so um, I'm involved in my neighborhood, in my, in my cities, um, uh, some justice work. And uh, we've been doing a lot of work uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. And there is a woman who's very um, engaged in this work, a Black woman. And one time she was talking with a white police officer and you can imagine that's sort of the quintessential polarization there. And part of, when asked about her story, part of her story is that my black daughter is married to a white police officer. Mm -hmm. And I love him. Yeah. And I've come to love his family. Yeah. Do these people walk away agreeing? Do these two walk away agreeing on policy? No. But all of a sudden, there's something that softens when you see, wow. This woman who's so active and so committed to making changes has white law enforcement in her family that she loves and respects. No, no, I, that, that's a wonderful example. And I mean, I, I guess one sort of puzzle that I've always had in this context, so I, I've done research in the past on political reconciliation. Uh, okay. In the, uh, international uh, context and on the role of uh, uh, empathy or uh, what uh, Smith called uh, uh, sympathy uh, in that context. And, you know, I, I really agree that this kind of um, dramatic, detailed, narrative-driven information about others is probably a precondition for starting to have the more rational conversations about rights and about, you know, who deserves what and where and so on and so forth. And, you know, in the Israeli-Palestinian context, for example, which is one of the cases I looked at, you know, part of the problem is that 
so many Israelis and so Palestinians know absolutely nothing about the everyday lives of each other and about, you know, what um, actual everyday experience looks like. Uh, but they've gone through so much that they also don't want to find out that they see most, um, most Israelis see, or at least used to see, or still probably now more than ever see any Palestinian as a representative of the collective identity and uh, uh, vice versa. And, you know, my, my intuition was if you, for example, are, you know, uh, find yourself for one reason or another at a roadblock and see that, you know, there's this old gentleman who needs dialysis treatment and can't get through and you think, oh, my dad has kidney problems and he can get all the dialysis treatment he wants whenever he wants. And, you know, something's moved in you beyond the sort of identity questions. But most of the time people in that context will tell themselves comfortably, you know, well, why would I go to the roadblock in the first place? And then you won't see, and then the sort of the rest of the chain uh, uh, won't happen. So in this case, in the sort of, in, in uh, uh, the, uh, the case that you tell us about from Beverly, that's a special set of circumstances. But what moves people, I guess my question is, what moves people to be willing to pay attention to somebody else's narrative story in the first place? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's the <laughs> three trillion. I don't know what number dollar figure we're up to now. Three trillion dollar question, right? Um, and I should first say that you know dialogue is not a panacea. It's not um, going to solve all the problems all the time, right? There are many other forms of uh, political action that are are necessary at times. Um, but also, secondly, then um, I don't think we have to start. Um, with 100% uh, turnout from the community to get things going. Fair in enough. fact, oftentimes, um, and this is what I've seen in my community and also Essential Partners who I mentioned, when they, they started, they got their start by bringing the leaders of the two sides of the abortion issue together yeah. behind closed doors. Just the leaders, I think they had about six leaders from each side met in, you know, in, um, uh, together um, behind closed doors for about three years. Um, and th their goal was not to come to agreement, but was to, this was the time where after an abortion doctor had just been shot in the Boston area. Uh, so how do we de-escalate the violence? So, I mean, if you had asked those leaders maybe three years prior to the violence, would they be willing to talk, just talk to the other side? Yeah. Probably not, right? So I think there's an exigency, right? There's this necessity today with literal and figurative fires burning in our towns. And so I think in, in, in my town, I think that the most motivated people have been the police officers, have been the activists, like the most, the people who sit on the most extreme sides. Um, of course, you're going to get a lot of citizens that don't want to want to talk. But I think, again, it's like it's building a culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes from all places, whether it's, quote unquote, on top from the leaders, um, the professional leaders of a, of a community or whether it's really the grassroots. And I think at the end of the day, most people, if you get them off social media, want to have a good conversation with someone. They're tired. They're tired of the shouting. Most people. I mean, of course, they're the trolls, but most people, they want to understand. And, I, and I've met a lot of people like that. A lot of people who, one person I've been speaking with lately um, does not believe in, because he doesn't believe in race, therefore he doesn't believe in racism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
we're trying to have a conversation, you know, just to understand each other and where, where we're coming from. And, um, but can I say something about your use of empathy? Yeah. Um, which set off some bells in my, so I actually argue in my book that empathy is not the goal of dialogue. And I don't, well, I'm not going to get into all of the details of why, but there are problems um, with both cognitive empathy and affective empathy that I just don't think are possible. I don't think that's possible. And I think just because you empathize with somebody, there's no guarantee that you're going to change or help them or even see them as a human being. So um, although let me just say as an aside to that, I'm, my current work is, is looking, is revisiting the term empathy to maybe try to reclaim it a bit through the theory of inactivism. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to go down that road now, but what I see as the goal of um, dialogue yeah. is mutual understanding. Yeah. Now, some people do identify and define mutual understanding as empathy, but I define mutual understanding as the ability uh, to allow the others claim to be Right, the, the, uh, the, to allow the other to make their claim to exist. So it's the existential claim that leads to mutual understanding, or that characterizes mutual understanding. It's their right to exist, my ability to acknowledge their right to exist. So again, on a very basic and fundamental value, level of values. Although you don't have to have dialogue with somebody to acknowledge their right to exist. You could say, I acknowledge your right to exist, and I would really prefer to not see you. You could have a, yeah, have a, I, I, I mean, and, and I think it's one thing to say, I don't want to see you, oh. or I really dislike your thoughts. And it's another to say, I'm ne never going to talk to you. And um, um, I'm going to do all I can to uh, belittle you, uh, and maybe oppress and harm you, right. So there's a there's a big continuum on the view of um, you have the right to exist. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, see you type thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on board with your skepticism of empathy and after looking into the role of empathy and political reconciliation processes after a few years, my main conclusion was to write another book on ceasefires rather than political reconciliation, because I thought that, you know, yeah. If empathy was logically part of the condition for reconciling or not logically, then maybe reconciling might be too lofty. So the empathy, the empathy question was, it seems that there are common um, conditions between what you call dialogue and empathy. Namely, you can't empathize with anyone if you don't have a detailed understanding of yeah. circumstances. And it also seemed like you can't begin dialogue on your account of dialogue if you don't have a detailed understanding of the story that pertains to your interlocutor's uh, uh, life. And insofar as if that's accurate or fair, then it seems like the same thing kicks both of those off, even if they're not the same. Yeah, I wouldn't say that you have to have have something like empathy to, to begin a dialogue mm -hmm. because I could enter into a dialogue as I have done with somebody thinking, wow, this person is a racist. I don't know how I'm going to talk to them. Yeah. I had very little empathy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think what I'm saying is that knowing something about the story that pertains mm -hmm. to 
a person's life can generate empathy with them as a person in spite of their uh, yes. position, right? Uh, right, right. So I think that's the work of dialogue. When you allow people's stories, which are the particulars of, of their own unique uh, social identities, when you allow them to come out, those differences and particularities, interestingly, what emerges underneath is the common value of humanity. And it's not just, again, it's not a propositional assent that, oh, now I acknowledge that, yes, you are a human being yeah. as to some other type of animal, but rather I'm actually allowing you to make that claim yourself, that you have made the claim that you are valuable as a human being. Mm -hmm. you have, it's your claim that's a right to exist. It's not just me checking off a box. Right, right. Now, if things work as you hope they do uh, in a dialogical encounter like this, what happens? What, what, is, what is the sort of hoped for sequence, if you wish? Right. Yeah. So again, I mean, just depending on the, on the situation, it's, I don't think a, a one-off dialogue is, is often going to change much. Um, people that do this uh, professionally, you know, have series of dialogues over weeks, months, and years. Um, and to me, it's, again, if you think about dialogue as a muscle, it's not that we just go to the gym, hit our fitness goal, and then stop exercising, right? It's a lifelong commitment. So um, I would like to see, you know, dialogic communities, right? Dialogue as a core um, practice, uh, in communities that keep going. So, I mean, one thing to answer, one answer to your question is to build dialogic communities, because I do not think that pluralistic democracies are possible without them. So if we're serious about pluralistic democracies, which unfortunately I know not everybody <laughs> these days, but if you are, dialogue can get you there. But dialogue can also lead to this mutual understanding so that when policy is passed, so again, as I mentioned, if you have these sort of communities, then you will have a um, more productive space for deliberation and policy uh, deliberation and consensus. It will be better. We still not will have agreement, but when a law is passed, those who disagree with it, because they've felt heard and acknowledged and seen, I believe will be less inclined to then go off in divisive and polarizing paths, right? They're not going to be lighting Black Lives Matter signs on fire as been, has been happening up in the North Shore and I'm sure many other places as well, right? So I think it's, um, everybody wants to, this is back to the Boober piece of that connection. Everybody wants to feel connected and part of the community. Mm -hmm. Dialogue is a means to that end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess to pick up on something that you're saying, and um, so I know that again, this is not the exact same thing, but sort of related. Some of the uh, research on you know what's called the contact hypothesis this idea that being in contact uh, with other people from a, 
perceived opposing uh, uh, group can help uh, 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 reduce tensions and so on and so forth. Some of the uh, pushback against that has been that, you know, something like this, if the Black Lives Matter and the COP, uh, the Black Lives Matter activist and the COP meet, then two things uh, uh, might happen. One is maybe the Black Lives Matter activist decides this cop is okay, but the rest are still terrible. Or uh, she or he might tell themselves, um, actually the cops are not as bad as I thought, but then the positive impression fades over time. So this idea that you either make the person you talk to an exception or that the impact fades. Are, are, are you finding any of that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen similar studies about longevity, and that's uh, about these, these effects over time, right, they do tend to diminish. But that's why I think if we can, if we can think about dialogue as changing culture, right, right it's not just about, you know, I spent a lot of time in my book talking, it's not just about individual beliefs and individual minds that are being changed, right, it's a culture. So maybe the next time that that Black Lives activist, you know, BLM activists might be um, more open, and I believe that actually they really are open to talking with um, with police. And I've seen this individual speaking with uh, people who have been out counter protesting in terms of the um, Blue Lives Matter. So um, again, I think that so for that question, I think it's repetition. And for the other part of your question, it's also repetition. It's to, it's to keep going. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that, that that's absolutely the the right the right response to those uh, to those concerns. That that just means that you do more of the dialogue rather than accept the criticism uh, of it. Uh, a kind of uh, a kind of Humean question, uh, uh, if you'll permit, about um, about dialogue. In part, it seems that we're so bad at this because of sort of contingent geographical, historical reasons that, I mean, the country is really big. Uh, there's much, more, we don't have too many joint experiences and joint institutions. You know, I'm, I, I'm originally from Israel, which uh, even before you, um, you know, think about all of its uh, uh, external conflicts as a terribly internally conflicted place. Uh, but part of what's interesting there is, I mean, one, it's a, a lot of people in a small space, so they, uh, you know, almost necessarily have to uh, interact. Um, but also there's a bunch of institutions that cut across uh, uh, sectors of the population uh, uh, like the army, like with all of its uh, problems, the uh, universal healthcare system that gives people some joint experiences so that they can say, you know, oh, I love Netanyahu, I hate Netanyahu, but we were both screwed over by our HMO. So, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, nothing much like that here. Um, so to what extent do you think this is part of the human condition, uh, as you were putting it earlier, and to what extent do you think it's a function of contingent circumstance, this failure? You mean the polarization? Yeah. Particularly, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I do think that um, there's a lot of contingencies that have exacerbated it in this country, right? A, a lot, a lot. Um, I don't think, as I, as I say in, the, in my introduction, you know, polarization is not difference and it's not even fear of difference because I can be afraid of, of somebody who's different from me um, or of a law being passed, but that doesn't prevent me from being open to, to talking with somebody. Um, so I think, you know, I'm a big fan of Dewey and um, his essay, Creative Democracy, is I think really, it's short, <laughs> but it's really so insightful. And he, he talks about uh, many important things in that essay, but one of them is, you know, we can't rest on uh, the inheritance of our democracy, right? We can't just be like our, you know, the, the forefathers and mothers gave us this democracy and now we're going to sit on our couches um, doing nothing. And so, but which is what I think we've been doing. <laughs> we are, we are not good Democrats, right? Small D Democrats. We're not, we're not, um, we're not good at that. Um, mm -hmm we've lost uh, civic engagement. I mean, you know, lots of people have made this uh, point, you know, I think of uh, Robert Putnam, um, you know, who identified this crisis, one of the people that identified this crisis of being so individualized that we have lost a lot of our civic organizations. And so how can you have civic dialogue? You know, I said, so I think the civic organizations were just natural incubators for civic dialogue. Once those organizations fall away or themselves become more linked to identity, um, then this becomes problematic. So um, my sense is, and this is something that I've really been thinking more and more about uh, this summer after the book came out, but I, I think that um, dialogue can be even more helpful given that I think the hope lies in the sort of bottom up, right? The grassroots. Um, you know, I'm not going to, we're not going to get members of Congress. To, to, well, some people are working on that. So I won't say, uh, I, I'll say I won't get them to do that. Somebody's called to that, you know, good for them. Um, but I think there's a lot of hope. I think you cannot start too small in terms of dialogue. And, um, you know, I've been part of a grant to study effects of dialogue in, in the higher ed classroom. And I think there's a lot of, you know, I wish that um, dialogue could be part of the, you know, new Massachusetts civic requirement in, in the elementary and high school, middle schools. Mm -hmm. um, we need to, to relearn or reteach this, this way of communicating. And I find it problematic, you know, when I do a lot of dialogue in, in, in my class, college classrooms, students are always, they're and I ask them to, you know, their comments afterwards, they say, wow, this is so different than the debates I've had in high school where we were shouting at each other. So again, I'm not saying that there's nothing that people can't learn from this debate style, but I think it's cultivating the ability to listen and to reflect across difference that needs to happen um, you know, before we even try to deal with a mess at the top, <laughs> start with something closer to home in our schools and our, and our communities. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And actually it makes me think of, um, actually makes me want to ask you how, how good do you think universities are as role models for the playing out of this dialogic culture, especially with, um, you know, the debate, for example, heating up about cancel culture and about what um, 
positions are and aren't allowed and aren't aren't polite in a, a university conversation, the deplatforming uh, of uh, 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 speakers, the sort of. So I'm assuming that all of this sits pretty uncomfortably with what you understand as dialogic culture. It does, it does. And I think it's another symptom of this polarization that, that college students, campuses cannot, um, t I don't know, tolerate, say, welcome. And let me say engage difference, because it's not just tolerating, right, holding your nose, but it's the ability to engage. Um, but I, I wonder sometimes if, if, you know, I don't, I don't want to blame college students. I don't really like blaming generations. In fact, I, I've been really impressed with my students so far in, in Emerson um, have been very open. Um, we've had re some really good conversations about what does it mean to talk across difference. And, so, and one student from another country said, I've been terrified since I've been in this country that I'm going to say the wrong thing. Yeah, and that's horrible. That's I mean, this is a person who's not running for politics, right? Then people can be terrified of what they're going to say. But this is in a college classroom, so I think I I spend a lot of time in the beginning of my courses trying to help students understand what this. It's I mean, the safe space is a little too trendy, but you know, some people call it brave spaces. I just like to call it engaged spaces where we're all able to listen and, and to speak yeah um, yeah i mean you know it's interesting because you know, going back to you know Locke, the primary virtue of a you know open society is supposed to be tolerance but tolerance is a negative virtue right it's like you know you can take an advil and not die basically so you can it uh, doesn't really make for you know a civic public uh, uh, space and you know you, you increasingly see that students I mean I've seen over the years I guess I should just speak for myself um, students are very tolerant um, but when you are tolerant, the main thing that you're thinking about is, you know, to minimize the offense that you give. And that brings about a great degree of caution and a lot of awkward silences. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah, much dialogue with that. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I'm not a big fan of the word uh, tolerate and having taught it at, at another, you know, other institutions, one of which students were so polite that and and I think that was born of their timidity mm -hmm. they had no they had they had they were afraid of their own convictions and so I mean this grant that I was part of a couple of years ago looked at the effects of dialogue to cultivate humility and conviction in the classroom mm -hmm. right we don't want our students to be just quiet and nice and smiling you know um, we don't want them yelling so that they can't listen right we want to help students tap into their underlying values and this is what so this is what dialogue this is what i've been trying to say the dialogue really helps people do reflect on their own values on the values of others and this is perfect for you know college education help students cultivate develop sharpen criticize their own values 
through dialogue with their peers, with professors, and of course in philosophy with these wonderful ancient texts. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's not toleration. It's, you know, we want students to grow. I want students to graduate with strong convictions, but I also want them to have humility and curiosity about difference because they don't know it all, even though they have their new degree. <laughs> So Lauren, let me ask you uh, a hypothetical question. If in your uh, uh, role, dual role as a philosopher and as a facilitator of these kind of dialogue groups, you were asked to um, bring together or uh, uh, fashion a uh, intervention for uh, somebody who on the one uh, hand was a, 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 an Elizabeth Warren supporter with uh, uh, all of the uh, policy, uh, specific policy wonkish uh, uh, preferences uh, and uh, uh, tendencies, and on the other, a uh, QAnon deep state uh, uh, promoter, supporter. Uh, I mean, these seem as polarized parts of the political spectrum uh, as I could uh, come up with. What would, a, what would an intervention look like how would you how would you structure that or would you would that be the one one of the ones you would say you know you can't you can't fix everything <laughs> no i mean first of all um along with that as long as as long as they're willing to be there I would be happy to, to do that. So I think that's one point to stress is that um, dialogue has to be voluntary. Mm -hmm. It's not like a sexual harassment training where you can just have people check off, you know, go through this, yeah. you know, um, information session and check off the box. So it is important that people are there voluntarily. And so if they are, I'm, I would be curious to sort of open up the space where both could talk about, um, you know, maybe I'd ask them to tell a story about, um, when they first got politically interested you know where were you in your life what what happened to you um maybe who was a role model um what did your family teach you about politics so really sort of talking about their origin stories i think that would be a great way to start i could imagine that both of these people are really committed to making society better right although they <laughs> vastly have different game plans. Um, so I think that's a place that they could connect as a human being. Yeah. Um, again, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I guess your comment in, 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 in the beginning is kind of uh, very important if they were willing to talk, which I guess would be in those circumstances at least uh, uh, pretty rare. Uh, but on the other hand, if you did find a you know, limited number of people on both sides of that divide who are willing to talk, that would have massive uh, symbolic uh, 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 um, cachet and you know, could potentially start a, uh, a positive cascade. But I guess I'm still- Oh, so can I say one, one more thing along with that? It maybe we'll um, anticipate your other question or your worry here. Um, so, you know, you, you talked about your experience in Israel, and, and I've never been there, but I do know people that have done some um, conflict transformation work yeah. involving music. Yeah. Right. So I, would say, so I would say that dialogue doesn't even have to begin with words necessarily. Yeah. Again, how fraught is the conflict? Yeah. And sometimes 
getting together and playing an orchestra is all that people can manage. They're not even talking. They're just there with the music, right? So um, that's, that's the first um, point that I wanted to make is that, and, and also responding to an earlier question about motivation, right? And I, and I think that these are gonna be born from specific conflicts. So even though I'm a philosopher, sometimes I have a really hard time dealing with these sort of very um, abstract counterfactuals um, because I think that when somebody, when an individual feels a conflict and they're in that community, I, I think most people want their communities to be better. So there's going to be some sort of, I mean, not all the time, but it, I think there's likely to be really at least an implicit, a tacit motivation to want to connect across difference. Um, again, on the grassroots level. So we're not talking about, let's just pick a place in the middle of the country and bring out the, the QAnon and the Warren fans and put them in a room together for a week, right? It's gonna be somebody in your community that you've seen difference. And, and, and the other point I wanted to make is that, you know, there's this wonderful story um, that's actually been turned into a book by the former um, white nationalist, Derek Black, have you heard of this um, story when he was in college in Florida and he, he was the son of a, of a founder, I think of a, um, of a pretty big media, white nationalist um, media outlet. And um, there was a group of Jewish students at that campus that held Shabbat dinners every Friday night and they decided to invite this rabid anti-Semite and rabid white nationalist they never they didn't start uh ever with the elephant in the room i don't know how many weeks they met but over a couple of years derek really he tells the story this is on a, on a podcast i think it's on on being but again there's a book um about how at some point he had to he had to reconcile like he really likes this jewish guy how does that fit with his anti-semitism and he held that together for a long time before coming out of and, and leaving uh, his white nationalism. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's very poignant. I mean, it did require the philosophical and political commitments for the people like yourself, I guess, who... Uh, in the end are promoters and believers in dialogue seem to be key for dialogue to happen um if that makes sense so i, but I don't think i don't i don't want to i mean that's true but i don't think you have to have really high flute values um or even know about dialogue to make this happen. You know, I think these Jewish students were human beings who wanted to Curiosity. connect with another human being. Yeah. So and that's pretty simple. I mean, it's not easy. Yeah. Right? And it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, and I also wouldn't, I mean, just to offer this caveat and, and qualification, I would never, you know, say, oh, okay, now I'll of the Jewish folks and the black folks have to initiate 
conversation with the other, right? right. That, that, that's not the right way to go about it at all. I mean, it has to be completely self-motivated. And I think that a lot of the work in our town is going to be dialogues, not, you know, I'm not going to invite black people so that they're the ones who have to come tell their story, right? If they want to come, that's fine, but we can talk about other things. So I just wanted to put out that qualification that it's, it's I'm not saying anything that the burden should fall on those who who are hurting the most from oppression and difference right now. Right, right. No, understood completely. I, I guess I just still have a question if it really is, because what I'm hearing from you is dialogue can be initiated by straight up human curiosity rather than yep, yep. the principle. And my sense is that maybe if you dig under the curiosity of the people who are curious, you will find the commitment to some underlying almost Kantian principles. That, so I, I guess I'm not so sure about the separation between the, uh, the rational and the curious or the rational and emotive uh, in the sense you have to have a sort of, or, it's possible, let's, I, I want to be a lot more tentative about this. It's possible that your curiosity uh, is actually animated by a uh, substrate or an underlying belief in shared humanity. Uh, they must be people too, or they must have some rational basis for their beliefs as well. Let me go explore it. Because otherwise, why would I become curious about people who I've been conditioned to see as less than human. Yeah. Don't have so, a that I should. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear that I hear that question in um in my my chapter looking at um how dialogue can can attenuate cognitive bias. Um in a way indirectly response to your question and I would say no because the problem with the um this Kantian picture as you just to, uh, have just described it is it functions too much in the realm of belief mm -hmm. if if by belief you mean a cognition right. and so i don't think that's uh what um you know a lot of neuroscience is showing us primarily motivates us these days right so i think a visceral experience Kant, we could say, perhaps his truth lies in his ability to conceptualize this experiential, this, I mean, he would hate what I'm saying, right? But um, visceral experience. So I, I don't think somebody has to have the thought. I don't, and in fact, I think that's a very dry thought. Like, if somebody says to me about an enemy, oh, they're a human being. Well, of course I agree they're a human being, but that might not change how I act or think or feel about that. So I think that what this dialogue does again by operating on the level of, of story, of question experience, it gets us out of our head. Um, and then I'm not saying the belief isn't important. And again, I think human rights and law has to be structured on that sort of uh, cog cognitive layer. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that um, most people unless they're Kantians, and I, some of my best friends are Kantians, um, read Kant and then are really motivated to care about the world and others having just read his philosophy. 
Oh, I don't. I I don't think that at all either. Uh, my question is, what would, why would you, what would drive you to become interested in the biography of a QAnon supporter? Mm. What would make me go and look up the um, uh, uh, biography and uh, family history and story? of a, uh, a suicide bomber. And I guess there could be, and I totally think that there may well be a powerful process that happens, you know, call it an alchemy or call it whatever we want uh, once I have gone and once I have been exposed to the story. But why, why would I take that first step? And mm -hmm. You know, I think one part of it might be, or, or, or one explanation might be a completely pragmatic one, namely, uh, I, I'm in a lot of trouble from suicide bombers. I better understand what's going on here. And yeah. uh, I need to understand it on a personal level. And that's, by the way, what animates a lot of intelligence agencies and so on and so forth. Or the other might be, you know, um, this is so weird. How could a human being like me do this, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But without those, I, I'm, I'm not sure how you go and listen to this story, I guess. Is, mm. is yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I think we agree. I mean, I agree with both of you. I think either of those could motivate people. Um, I think that most people, um, whose lives are impacted, right, on a, on a communal and grassroots level, um, don't really need the philosophy to motivate them. It could, it could, and I, and I hope it does motivate some of my students. Um, but I guess I just wouldn't pin all my hopes <laughs> on philosophy. <laughs> very little. <laughs> I guess one third, one other option, uh, which I um, uh, studied when I was uh, writing about reconciliation, is you know something like the World War One Christmas truce, mm. or you know the Germans and the English and the Scots uh, and the French find themselves under circumstances that erase their stereotypical differences. They, mm. they mm -hmm. kind of realize on a very visceral level that in spite of fighting under f different flags, they are actually closer to each other than they are to the, their commanding officers a few miles back in the uh, chateaus, uh, moving them on the maps. Uh, so those kind of yeah. you know, circumstances yeah. also move people into dialogue as it did then. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and uh, dialogue can have a similar experience and vice versa. I mean, it's not always like one has to, um, precede the other in that in that case i think that's what we're that's what we're looking for i think it's the the that's why i call it sort of the existential claim it's experiential um it's experience of the other as a human being yeah it's experiencing the common human values it's not just uh the intellectual assent to that right 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 well lauren i know we're running out of time this was super great and thank you oh, so thank much for you. yeah uh, spending some time with us. Uh, everybody should read your book and uh, best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.